from the Salvation Army National Headquarters, this is the Fight for Good Podcast. Well, hi, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Fight for Good podcast. I'm your host, Lieutenant Colonel Tim Foley. We're broadcasting here in Alexandria, Virginia, home of the Salvation Army National Headquarters in the good old U.S. of A. Once again, joining me on my right hand, my right hand man that lifts my right hand up all the time with the questions. It is Mr. Jeff McDonald, our War Cry editorial director. Hello, sir. Hello, Colonel Foley. God bless you. So good to be with you. A little concerned. I read something today that said if your social life has not changed much during the pandemic, that means you're antisocial. Has me scratching my head a bit. But anyway, <laughs> I'm glad to be socially together with you. And also joining us is just the person that makes these podcasts happen, and we're just so thrilled. Our own expert putt-putt golfer and survivor fandom person. I don't know what else you call her, but she is our producer. Elizabeth, waving to you. Good morning to you. How are you today? Good morning. That was my favorite intro ever, and I'm so stoked to be here. You are like our listeners need to know you are just like huge, huge into this survivor show, right? You like that it show? It is my life's passion. You have watched every episode. You have, have you applied to be on the show? Oh, this is, yes, I have multiple times. <laughs> I never called it. me. So it's kind of a sore subject, but I'm working on it. Okay. Okay. Well, <laughs> it's we'll, coming attraction. We'll see if maybe our listeners out there can pull some strings. Maybe yeah. there's, there's some, some ways. Elizabeth, though, I'm thinking, Jeff, I don't think we would want her to go away for like, what, don't they go away for like two and a half years and live on some little island and eat coconuts and bugs? <laughs> for me. It's, it's like like six weeks, roughly six to eight weeks. In, but there's actually no coconuts because they go to Fiji now. Well, you know my worry about skin cancer, so I would just I would just be very very cautious if you thank you get you know uh, Jeff and I would totally. be worried about it, but we would we be, your be your biggest fan. We'd be your guardians. We'd come and kind of make oh sure we're just in, in place for you. Thank you. you. I'll I'll be your digital guardian. I'd rather stay. <laughs> here. <laughs> Anyways, Elizabeth, good to hear from you. Well, on this episode of today, uh, today's uh, Fight for Good podcast, we have the privilege. Jeff, we've got a, this is a unique one. You know, I, I know I, I say every podcast is unique, but they are. And we're all, we're all unique. And, but this is great because today we're speaking with a core officer of the Midwest core and community center in Chicago, Illinois. The core officer is a cadet at the time of this recording, soon to become a lieutenant, and that is Karen Felton. She's with us today. Karen, we are so thrilled you're here. God bless you, and good morning to you. Good morning. I'm so excited to be here. Well, we ran across you because a friend said to me, sent me your poem. You wrote a poem and you put it on Facebook. And the friend in so many terms said, 
you need to run this, Tim. <laughs> Maybe not that gruff. Not that gruff. She's a little more gentle. But we saw your poem, and uh, Jeff, I I passed it on to you. And what were what were some of your impressions of what uh, Karen wrote? Well, first, it was uh, so great to hear from somebody who was actually on the front lines. Um, so the poem itself, um, you know, we were trying to figure out a way to uh, treat the uh, the uprising, racial tension, and protest in the war cry from the army's perspective. And this poem just seemed to strike a vein that we've been hearing over and over again. Uh, the title of the poem is "How Much Is One Life Worth?" And you. Uh, Cadet Felton have uh, really um, encapsulated, I think, a thought that many of us have come to during this time when, you know, structures seem to be winnowing down, you know, what is really the essence of how we are to uh, treat and perceive each other. And I think your poem conveys that. So I think that's why we were so pleased to receive it. Well, we're going we're gonna to let our listeners kind of hold on here a little bit because we've asked you to read the poem, but we, wanna, we want you to read the poem, which is appearing in the July uh, 2020 issue of The War Cry, and it will also run online at www.thewarcry.org. We'll have you read it out loud, but, but tell, tell our listeners a little bit about yourself because uh, we, we'd like to know you're a cadet and you're in a corps and, you know, how, how did you come to know the Lord? How did you come to find the army? How did you come <laughs> to find yourself in, in your situation? Um, well, I'll try to encapsulate it. Um, I came to the army. I was, um, I had gone through a very difficult divorce. I was, um, my whole life in the Catholic church. My dad is a deacon. I had homeschooled my kids. Um, as a as a Catholic wife and mom, I was deeply entrenched in that community and um, went through a divorce and found myself um, on the outside of what I had always thought was my community. Um, and I needed to find a job. And I saw an ad in the paper for um, an administrative assistant at um, the Salvation Army Divisional Headquarters in Heartland. And I applied, not thinking I would even get an interview. And I got an interview and I just told the person interviewing me, I said, I know that I'm absolutely not qualified for this. I was stayed home with my kids for 23 years, but if you take a chance on me, I'll work harder than anybody's ever worked in their life for you. And she believed me. And I think it was the Lord's prompting because he knew that I needed the Salvation Army um, because I started to work there and I was not going to church. I was pretty hurt and angry and beaten up. And um, <laughs> there was an officer there, Major Jesse Collins, who kept walking by my cubicle. And <laughs> in my cubicle, I had crazy things. I had Buddha and the Dalai Lama and all kinds of stuff. And he would peek his head in and look around at everything and come in. And he said to me one day, what do you believe in? And I said, are you allowed to ask me that? And he said, I'm just asking out of curiosity. And I said, I don't think I believe in anything. And after that, he kept coming to my cubicle. And I was like, well, what do I have to do to get this guy to leave me alone? 
So we started having these conversations about why I was so hurt by the church. And um, I told him I just, I wasn't interested in religion. And he just let me keep talking. And they kept asking me if I would ever be interested in going to church. And I said, absolutely not. And finally, one day, uh, Major Donna Miller invited me to go um, to their core. And I said, I'm, I'm not a church person. And she said, if you go, I'll feed you dinner. <laughs> so I went, I went for the meal. But um, 10 minutes in, it hurt my heart so much to be in church that I ran out. And she called me and she said, all I asked you to do is come to church and you came to church. So I'll still give you that dinner. And so she kind of opened the discussions in a more intentional way about why I was so hurt. And um, when she got moved, the cells came in and they kind of picked up where she left off and they, they kept challenging me to stay at church five minutes longer. And each time I tried to make it that five minutes longer, um, until I finally stayed one day through a whole service. And I think it was after that, that God really started working on my heart and I knew I needed to change a lot of things. Um, but the awesome part is they kept loving me even before I made any of those changes. They just kept asking me to come back. And I think because of that openly, uh, love and acceptance, it attracted me. It didn't make me feel like I had to fit in or be something that I wasn't. And um, it was in it was in that church that I invited Jesus. I say I invited him back into my life um, because I was a believer before that. I just, I was so hurt. I couldn't, I didn't want to be that hurt again. And so I had to reinvite him in and uh, turn my life over to him. And after that, things started changing rapidly. And I knew very quickly that he was calling me. And uh, Major Donna had told me in our very first conversation that I was going to be wearing red someday. And I told her my eyes rolled in the back of my head. And I said, you have lost your mind. <laughs> and then uh, Major Kelly Collins told me that. Um, God had, God had let her know that I was supposed to be an officer. And I said, I'm not even a soldier. And so um, it was a long journey. I had to dismantle a lot of things and rebuild a lot of things. Um, but once I knew I was called it and accepted that I was called, it, it all happened rather quickly. <laughs> and God has taken me on this crazy roller coaster that... Um, has been candidacy and internship and uh, CFOT. So, well, um, it's a, it's amazing. I mean, uh, you you talk about uh, Major Donna Miller. She is a veteran of the Fight for Good podcast. We had her uh, on in in some of the early days when we did this because of all of the great work. You know, she's truly a hero in Iowa. What what she, her ministry that she did there. Um, and she's just recently uh, retired from active duty. So, you know, you had, you had a solid voice speaking to you. And I know the Collins personally um, in, in Peoria, I could, I could just see major Jesse drilling in <laughs> and, and, and not giving up, you know, he was and, so persistent. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Thank so, God. 
you know, those are, those are important lessons that, you know, I mean, we, we kind of teach it at the training college. We tell the cadets, we tell officers, you know, it's, it's really vital to just build those relationships and, and to, to be. And so it just sounds like God brought some people into your life who are just typical Salvation Army officers who just do the right thing, who are doing the most good. And, um, you know, that's a, and that's an example for you um, as you heal and as you get the courage and as you take those steps in, in your new role as, as a, as an officer, uh, for you to take with you. Um, so you're, you're right now, really, you're, you're at a core that's in, uh, West, the West part of Chicago. Tell us a little bit about what, what it is that you're facing, what you're feeling, what, uh, kind of the situation is right now. Um, okay. Um, the last couple of weeks have been, really difficult and very, um, God has really been asking me to sort a lot of things out in my own heart, um, with what I've seen and experienced and heard, um, from our core members in the community. Um, West Garfield is a neighborhood in Chicago that is plagued by a lot of gang violence, a lot of, um, drugs, uh, a lot of generational poverty. The poverty rate is 98% in our community. There's a lot of homelessness. I I go out every week and visit all the tent cities around our core. Um, it's just, it's a very, uh, it's a community very entrenched in poverty. And most of them have never left the confines of their neighborhood. I, I before COVID hit, I had proposed a trip for our women's ministry, and most of them have never left the neighborhood. So they were so excited to even think about getting in the van and going somewhere out of Illinois. That was a huge deal. So um, coming into the events and knowing that my husband and I are white pastors that need to speak life into an entirely 100% black and brown community that has been living in these conditions for their entire lives was very intimidating to me. And I felt it deeply. I felt the weight of that deeply and I felt very inadequate and small, but God really convicted me that I needed to be honest with them and I needed to just love them. And so on May 31st, we were, I had given us a recorded sermon to my congregation that I sent out. And I said to them, I understand that I am your white pastor and that I cannot begin to understand how you experience the death of George Floyd. And I cannot begin to understand what you're feeling as you watch on TV and see the protests and the riots. But I want you to know that I want to know, even if it makes me uncomfortable, even if I have to look at myself and my own entrenched biases that I don't even realize are there. I want to know because it is my job to love you and to help you to love Jesus even more than you already do and to find a path to healing through all of this. And uh, I cried during that sermon and I tried to record it five times and then 
my husband finally said, I think they need to see your tears. So just let it be what it is. And so I had uh, been sitting there after we sent out that sermon and I just had the biggest conviction that we needed to go check on our core building. And so we drove down there and when we got out of the van, we were just surrounded completely by looters and people. It was it was like nothing I had ever seen before. And I knew that they were the people in our community and that they were looting their own stores and that the store owners were also people in our community. And it was very difficult for me to process. And I felt so sad and so confused. And I remembered a story. Um, we had had a lunch. It was um, like a, a big dinner we had for our core members. And we had some officers visiting. And we, when we have things left over, we box it up. And then we tell the core members, we have leftovers here for you to take. And, and there's always a stampede to get it. That's just what happens. And the visitor said, are your people always so grabby? And I told her, our people are grabby because they go without all the time. They never have enough of what they need. And so when we tell them we have something for them, there's a feeling inside of them that if they don't get it, somebody else will and they'll go without. And so I don't see it as being grabby. I see it as them wanting to get what we have to offer. And so that conversation kept coming back to me as I watched the looters. And I understood that God didn't want me to judge the actions. He just wanted me to try to sit and understand and to figure out how we're going to love this community through it. And that means loving all of them. It means loving the looters and the store owners and our core members who don't drive and now have no stores to shop in. And it means loving the police officers who are in danger in that neighborhood. It means loving the firefighters. <laughs> like there were so many layers that I needed to figure out how, how we're even going to begin to approach our community. So you are representing in your community you know, uh, the message of hope. Um, yes. You are atypical of, of a Salvation Army working in the inner city in this day and age when the cameras are not around, when the politicians go away. Um, you are, um, boy, you know, you, you've got a very, very unique appointment. I, I'm assuming that you and your husband will continue in this core once you're commissioned? Well, they, my husband is um, a long service officer. Oh, okay. <laughs> he's, he's, he's already, he's a veteran. Tell, he's uh, 35 uh, years a Salvation Army officer. So we're in a very unique situation. All right. He's a he guardian. Is, he's a guardian of the truth. Yeah. Yes, he is. Uh, he had his long service uh, last year at commissioning. Oh, so um, we're. We're a very unique uh, pairing, I guess. Um, and so he said they definitely would have told him by now if we were moving. And that was a huge concern for our core members because uh, when we came, there was a lot of 
racial tension even inside of our church building. And we have made it our task to try to dismantle even what was happening inside of our doors over the last two years. And so as commissioning was approaching, they kept saying, are you leaving us? <laughs> and I said, I, they would have told us by now. So that was a very big concern for them. So what I told them now is I, we have at least another year, so let's make the year count. And, you know, who knows? Every June, it's who knows. But what I know is that we have another year and there's a lot of work to be done. So I'm just curious, um, as a, a white corps officer in this situation, um, first, how many um, different um, racial, ethnic groups are you dealing with? And also, what have you found to work in, in reaching across the divides? So when we came, um, it was very apparent from day one, there's two groups in our church. There's um, a Caribbean group that comes in from the suburbs because that's been their church for a very long time. And then there's the people that live in our neighborhood that come to the church. And right away, even if you were a visitor, you would know that the Caribbean sit on the right side and the African-Americans from our community sit on the left side. And there was great division between the two. And there were a lot of things happening that were not okay. And so we prayed and prayed and prayed about how to dismantle some of what was happening because we knew that we couldn't be a voice for the community if we couldn't even get racial understanding within our own core building. And it was interesting because they're all black and brown people, but the Caribbeans see themselves differently and the African-Americans see themselves differently. And so we had to figure out a way to help them to see each other as just brothers and sisters, as salvationists together there to worship Jesus. And it took, it, it has taken time. Um, I think we've come a very long way. Um, we, told them right away that um, we were going to incorporate both cultures into worship, that it wouldn't just be one way. We told them that we needed to see um, more equity in the core council. <laughs> and so we had to make some changes so that there was equal representation in core council. We had to do even the little things like what, what food we serve. It couldn't just be Caribbean food, or it couldn't just be what the African-American community wanted. We had to do both. We had to do both as far as music and worship. I mean, it was it was deeply entrenched. And um, I think the people who lived in the community felt like we were not there to serve their community. We were there to serve people who were coming in from the suburbs. And so we had to be very intentional about letting people know we changed our vision statement. We made it very bold that we are there to serve our community, that the Salvation Army was built and placed there to be there for the community that we live in. And that caused some uh, waves, but I think now the 
business owners, the people in the community, and even the people that sit in the pews are beginning to trust that um, we are truly there to serve the West Garfield neighborhood. And I think that is so important. Well, I was just reading about trust this morning and how, you know, what we're seeing is a breakdown of trust on many levels, you know, with authority, with politics, with social structures. So that's a lot of work to build trust, isn't it? Yeah, but that's what it takes. And it's a fragile, it's a very fragile thing. And that's why when the day that I saw the looters, I said to my husband, the way we respond to this will make or break our trust in the community. We cannot not do anything. We can't just keep doing business as usual and pretend that nothing is happening in this community. Hmm. Have you seen any change in in attitudes just since the the protests broke out? Do you see signs of hope? The difficulty that uh, we're facing right now is that the looting happened. Um, it caused a lot of anger and fear in the community. And then as an added <laughs> issue, the gangs in the neighborhood have taken uh, the chaos that was happening and they have gone to war amongst each other to try to gain territory because there's chaos happening. The police are so distracted by having to be at the protests and having to prevent looting that it's really um, over the last week been a devastating increase in violence in the neighborhood. And so being able to be a voice for hope in a place of hope is really, it's a challenge right now. And um, not to offend any vegans out there, but my mom always told me that the only way to eat an elephant is a bite at a time. So I said we have to be very intentional about looking at what bites we can take, what we can do. And so um, doing small things and showing the people in the community that we're there to love them and that we're there to listen. And that, to me right now, is the most important thing we can do. And so um, last week I went I walked, it was very scary. The police have barricaded off their precinct and uh, our precinct is in probably one of the worst uh, couple blocks in our neighborhood. And they had a three block perimeter. So I had to park my car and I walked into the police precinct. And that was probably the first time I was scared in our neighborhood was walking those three blocks within the police confines. and. I walked in and the death sergeant cried out and he's like, the Salvation Army is here. And I walked up to him and I had brought them a card and a little gift. And he started to cry, this big, burly Chicago police officer. And I said, I just wanted you to know that we're thinking about you. And he said, are you serious? And I said, of course. And he said, but we're the enemy. And I said, there's no enemies here. I said, we need to change things, but there's no enemies. And we want you safe and we want you protected. And we want you to know that we're praying for you. And he said, please keep praying because we're outnumbered and my guys are scared. And so that really impacted me that we need to keep showing up. 
just even to show up and say, we love you. We're praying for you. We're here. What do you need? Because the community needs to see that. And so um, Monday, I'm going to walk. I've been trying to gather some things for the shop owners, and I'm going to walk around and put together a little care package for them. And I'm just going to go in and talk to each of them and let them know that um, we're there. And um, if they need somebody to talk to, somebody to listen. If they need physical help, whatever they need, we want them to know that we're there for them. And um, just to try to continue to do those small things. Well, Karen, would you would you bless us now by reading the poem that the Lord laid on your heart. Okay. Woke up this morning to the world on fire. Angry voices raised amidst the tumult, crying out, while smoke swirled through the masses. How much is one life worth? People who look like me say, this is destruction. This does not further the cause. You are defeating the purpose. How much is one life worth? March 5th, 1770, Private Hugh White stood alone on a frigid Boston night. The tensions were running too high, and so they came. How much is one life worth? Private Hugh was attacked by the mob, called for help. He couldn't be alone. Both sides came running, and chaos escalated. How much is one life worth? The mob struck a match on a powder keg of tension, which we now celebrate on July the 4th because it led to freedom. How much is one life worth? The status quo is to let it go until next week, next month, when the hashtag changes, insert another name. How much is one life worth? We allow other humans to drink dirty water, to go without basic needs, to have unequal access to things we take for granted, to be silenced out of fear. How much is one life worth? Our hearts are crying out, lament is on our lips. How long must we wait, O Lord, for real change to come? How much is one life worth? COVID quarantine, loss of jobs, isolation and fear, the perfect storm. How much is one life worth? I woke up this morning to the world on fire. Voices swirling, chaos ensuing, while somewhere a family grieves. How much is one life worth? In his image we were made, his name written on our palm. He gave his life for this one. Even now God is saying his name. That's how much his life was worth. When did you actually write the poem? Uh, I had stayed up. (laughs) Um, It was the Friday after um, George Floyd was killed. And I stayed up almost all night watching as all the riots broke out and the police precinct was on fire in Minnesota and I couldn't sleep and I dozed off and the Holy Spirit woke me up with that. Well, uh, Connect Karen, we thank you so much for listening to the Holy Spirit and for the gift that God has given to you. And thanks. Thanks for joining us today. Okay. Thank you so much. Well, that's going to end this episode of the fight for good podcast. Be sure to subscribe to fight for good wherever you listen to podcasts and don't forget to follow the war cry and peer magazine on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and Pinterest.
Until next time, this has been the Fight for Good podcast. Bye for now. Subscribe to Fight for Good wherever you listen to podcasts.